Um, I want to get to work here in Luke chapter 9. And as we do, I want to just open with a question. And, and I want you to have this question kind of with you this morning as we go through this passage together. I want you to kind of hold on to this question um, and, and just let it sink in deep and, and do some work with it. Um, but the question is this. Are you hungry for the presence of God? Are you hungry for God's presence? And, and before we look at this passage, I, I, I want to acknowledge that we, we are living in a world right now where um, this idea of the presence of God, this, this concept of the supernatural encounter or supernatural experience, us, us claiming to be near God and receiving things from Him is, is increasingly becoming um, uh, looked down upon kind of quaint, right? Uh, we, we, you don't have to look very far to see that secularism in our world is, is growing and is becoming more and more entrenched. And, and so with that in mind, I want us to look at what is this thing called the presence of God? What, what do we mean when we talk about that? And how does that kind of set us apart from this rising secularism that we see in our culture today. And, and so, as Sarah read just a minute ago, this is a literally a mountaintop experience that Peter, James, and John, the three disciples Jesus took with him, up onto this mountain. It's literally a mountaintop experience that they have. And, and the, the word that is used to describe this experience, it might be on the, the header in your Bible, but it's the transfiguration. It's a big, fancy biblical word, but basically it describes this unique experience in the Bible where, where the disciples saw a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory. He manifested himself. He revealed himself to them. Another word that is sometimes used for these types of experiences in the Bible is a theophany. It's, it's, a, it's a visible expression or a manifestation of God to his people. So, so that's what we have going on here on this mountaintop experience. But the thing I want us to make sure we know is significant about this is that it was a miracle. This was a miracle. This was um, not just simply something that could happen as a result of uh, you know, humans bringing this about. This is something that happened by God. And in that, what happened was the disciples saw a new dimension to who Jesus was. If, if they had an idea of who he was based on his teaching, based on his miracles up to this point, what happened on the mountain brought that understanding to a new level, to a new dimension. And so we're talking about the presence of God, and I'm asking this question, are you hungry for the presence of God? And I want to make one thing clear first is um, when I'm talking about the presence of God, and we're looking at this passage of the disciples on the mountain, the way the disciples experience God's presence there on that mountaintop is not a normal experience. This is not something that we look at and we say, we're going to try to emulate this for ourselves um, because we, we like what we see and so we want to make that happen. That's not what's happening here. This is something unique, historical. God used this. It had a particular purpose for Jesus' earthly ministry. And so the point of this passage is not for us to read it and say, um, we expect to see this exact thing or type of thing happen in our life. We're not expecting to hear voices coming out of clouds, right? Hopefully you're, you're not. I mean, maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. But um, we're not going to have that experience. 
And with that, our experience of how we experience God is fundamentally different than how the disciples did it. They experienced the physical presence of God. They walked and they talked with Jesus. Whereas we encounter the presence of God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that God does at times choose to manifest himself, to, to reveal himself in kind of these, uh, the, these unusual and significant, miraculous ways. But I want to make sure that it's clear that when I'm talking about the presence of God, I'm not talking about something that is coming and going. Okay? Was, if we are in Christ, we have the presence of God in our life. That's the promise that we have from Scripture. We may not always feel it, we may not always believe that it's there, but if we believe that Scripture is true, then this is a precious promise for us. We will never be forsaken by God. So his, his presence, he's with us, he's for us. We have that assurance all the time because the finished work of Christ, his death and his resurrection, that work on our behalf is he's interceding for us. He's advocating for us to the Father. And so we, what I'm talking about is, is, in a sense, practicing the presence of God, Be, finding ways through, through pursuing God, through, through reading Scripture, through worshiping, through being with his people. We're, we're practicing an awareness of the presence of God in our lives. But, but hopefully you're, you're catching that this is not something that we can just choose to move in and out of God's presence. We can't be led into God's presence by anyone other than Jesus, right? No matter how good the, the worship leader, and we have the best worship leaders I've ever worked with here at Outward Church, right? We have phenomenal worship leaders. No matter how good they are, they can no more lead us into the actual presence of God than say a good burrito could lead us into the presence of God. Jesus has already done it for us. So we have his presence. Our daily experience with the presence of God is different than this experience. It was an exceptional event, but we're going to look at it today, and I think there are some truths, there are some things in this event that we can take and that we can apply to ourselves that have relevance to us as we look at how do we shape our faith or how does God shape our faith. So I have three things, uh, three, three main, main ways that I want to look at here. And number one is this. The presence of God gives us greater clarity about who he is. We gain clarity about who God is when we are in his presence. So when I was a kid, I remember uh, my, my brother and I would, would go to the store with my mom. Uh, you know, she had to do shopping or whatever, and so we go to, I remember going to Walmart a lot. And so we would go to Walmart, and I remember a, a lot of times we would, you know, we'd just get in the door and we'd say, Mom, can we go to the toy section? My brother and I wanted to go hang out in the toy section at Walmart while she did all her boring stuff, right? And so we, uh, which, which is just like baffling to me now, thinking about this as a parent, like would I ever let my kids go off by themselves in Walmart in 2020? But 1990s uh, Kansas was a little different than the world we live in right now. But so my brother and I would be like, Mom, we want to go to the toy section, right? So she would let us go. We would run off to the toy aisle at Walmart. And most of the time, we would end up finding ourselves at the Lego aisle. 
Okay, so we, we loved Legos. Uh, we played with, with uh, Legos all the time. And so we would, we would just find ourselves here on the Lego aisle looking at the shelves of, you know, the boxes with all the pictures on them. And, and so we would just spend, you know, as long as my mom was in the store, a lot of times, I think, we would just spend our time fixated, feasting on, right, the, uh, you know, the, the different Lego sets that were there. Oh, they got this one. It was in the catalog, and now they've got it in the store. Or, uh, oh, I've never seen this one before. This is brand new. Um, and, and we would imagine what it would be like to have these Lego sets and how to play with them and, and own them. And then a birthday would happen, or Christmas would roll around, or we'd save up enough of our allowance money, we would actually buy one of these sets, get to take it home, take it out of the box, and put it together, right? And, and what happened when we were able to build these Lego sets was it went from being something that we had limited knowledge of, right, like a two-dimensional picture on a box, lived in our imagination. Suddenly, we could hold it. We could turn it. We could, we could open different parts of it up and look at it, and we had a new dimensional understanding of this toy. Our, our knowledge of this toy changed, and I think in a similar way, the transfiguration here and the presence of God in our own lives gives us an opportunity to grow in our perspective of who Jesus is. The disciples had caught some glimpses of Jesus' glory through his teaching, through some of the miracles he had done, but here he was revealed to them in a new way. And they didn't just see a vision. Peter, James, and John, they weren't just seeing something that they imagined. It wasn't just like a dream. The, the, the way the text describes what happened was an actual transformation. It says, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothes became white. And, and the language that's used here, the description that's used here, reminds us of some other descriptions in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes a vision he has of this, this person called the Ancient of Days, which we know he's, he's talking about Jesus, but uh, he has this vision in the Old Testament, and he says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. This description of Jesus on the mountain sounds similar to the way the psalmist describes God in Psalm 104. Verse 2, it says, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. This theophany on the mountain, this, this transfiguration of Jesus, a visible appearance of God to humanity was communicating to the disciples in a very explicit and clear way just whose presence they were in. And in case there was any doubt from his appearance, look at the two figures that appeared. Okay, so you have Moses and you have Elijah. They appear and they are hanging out with Jesus here on the mountain. Now, these two guys, Moses and Elijah, are pillars of Israelite history. Moses was, was known as the, the representative um, or the kind of the author of the law. And Elijah, I think in a lot of ways, represented the prophets, the, the line of, of people who were, spoke the words of God to the people of Israel to encourage them, to call them to conviction. And, and the, the scriptures that Jesus had in his day would have been a collection of the law and the prophets. Those were the two main parts, and the, plus the Psalms. But the, the law and the prophets were the two, um, the two main pro, uh, parts of, of Hebrew scripture, the, the word of God right? 
And you have Moses as a representative of the law, and you have Elijah as a representative of the prophets here. And so together, these prophets made up the Jewish scripture. And in that mountaintop moment, a moment of glory and a moment of clarity, the word of God, God's revelation of himself through the law and the prophets was shown to be fulfilled in Jesus himself, the word of God incarnate. John writes this in John 1, 14. Remember, John was on the mountain here. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The word became flesh. We've seen his glory. You have to think that John had this experience in mind as he was writing this. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Moses and Elijah were there on the mountain with Jesus to bring clarity to who he was and what his mission was. And there's, there's some debate about exactly the significance of these two men, but there, you, you could keep finding more and more symbolic um, uh, possibilities here, right? Like you look at Moses. He delivered a people. He, or he, he delivered them and then established them as, as a people. Jesus came to deliver and establish a people. Elijah spoke as a prophet of God to sustain the people of God with hope. Jesus came as himself, the ultimate giver of our future hope. And another thing, both Moses and Elijah had supernatural encounters on a mountaintop. They also had uh, theophanies on mountains. Moses experienced God's glory uh, on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. It's a, it's a big, long part of the book of Exodus, Moses meeting with God on the mountain. Elijah had a supernatural encounter with God of his own on a, on a mountain in 1 Kings 19 when he experienced the whisper of God's presence in, in the middle of a, of a battle with depression and discouragement. Both of these guys, both of these heroes of Israelite history were known for their proximity to God's presence. And so here on the mountain with these two figures, Jesus is making it clear. When you're with him, you're with God. And you got to love Peter's response here. Uh, you know, it says in... Um, Verse, verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as, they were, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. He got that right. right? That part is, that was great. Like Peter recognized we're in the presence of God and this is a good thing, right? So we could stop the sermon there almost and say, Peter got it. You get it, right? Like, if, if, if you're in the presence of God, that's a good thing. That's a, that's a takeaway right there, okay? But, but then he goes on, and he says, um, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And, and you got to, I mean, you got to give Peter a little bit of grace here because, I mean, I can't imagine what I would say in, in this situation, but uh, Peter, I mean, the, the gospel writers, they tend to kind of poke a little bit of fun of Peter, I think. I think there's kind of this recurring theme of Peter is kind of the, the guy who sticks his foot in his mouth. Peter says something without thinking about it, right? I mean, Luke even says this. Uh, he says, not knowing what he said. You almost kind of see him like, you know, nudging the guy next to him like, that's so Peter. 
Classic Peter, right? Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I can, I can definitely relate. I, I have my fair share of moments where I say something, and inside I'm like, really? That did not make sense. I wish you could walk that one back. But um, thankfully, Jesus has grace for us in these moments. And do you see what Jesus does in this moment? He doesn't actually even engage with Peter. He doesn't even respond to him. Uh, so in one sense, he, he doesn't dignify the foolishness that Peter has here. But what he does do is he brings further clarity. After Peter speaks, the cloud envelops Jesus the voice comes, it identifies him as God's son, and Jesus is left alone. He's alone. Moses and Elijah were there, and now they're gone. And I think what is being communicated in that, when Peter, in his foolishness, in his, uh, you know, in his earnestness, but at the same time he's being kind of naive, he, he, he's almost thinking of Jesus and Elijah and Moses on the same way. He's thinking of them as all important figures, but he's kind of associating them as if they are in the same category. But he doesn't realize what he's saying because Jesus is not simply a great figure like these other men. The lives of these two men, Moses and Elijah, just like the, the, the lives and the stories of every other character in the Bible serves the purpose of pointing to Jesus ultimately. Every character in the Bible's job is to decrease so that Jesus may increase. Jesus is not simply another lawgiver like Moses. He's not simply another prophet like Elijah. He is the true and better lawgiver. He is the true and better prophet. As Jared Wilson writes, he says, the law is good, but Jesus is better. The law is good because it is from God, and it is good for what God meant it to do. It is good the way a correct diagnosis is good. But while the law is good like a diagnosis is good, Jesus is better than the law, like a cure is better than the diagnosis. This is the type of clarity that the disciples received in God's presence. And in a similar way, in our lives, when we find ourselves aware of the presence of God, when we are in God's presence, when we are contending for and pursuing more of God's presence in our lives, we gain greater clarity for who he is. When we're with God, our questions of what is God like who is God, become answered for us. So that first point, when we are in God's presence, we gain clarity of who he is. Are you hungry for the presence of God? Number two, the presence of God is where we discover his will for our life. There was a clear directive here. Uh, in this experience when, when God showed up on the mountain in the disciples' experience here. When the glory of God appeared, he was showing them something, yes, but more than that, he was also telling them to do something. The pronouncement, this is my son whom I love, came with a command, listen to him. 
The presence of God is not simply so that we can know more about God. It's not simply so that we can feel good about our closeness to God. But the presence of God is where we find our direction, our purpose. It's, it's where we get our marching orders. The purpose of the presence of God reveals to us, what now? How should I live? What, what do I need to do? This is what the presence of God does for us. And, and so we look at this presence of God that, that um, gave this command on the mountain. It said, listen to Jesus. I think there's two levels of implications for how this helps us understand the will of God. When God says, listen to him, listen to Jesus, there's, there's weight that it carries kind of at a general level. Jesus is the son of God. His teaching provides the bedrock for our faith, for our Christian life. And so how are we to live? Collectively, the words of Jesus are our guide. That's the answer to the question, how are we to live? Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. This is foundational truth for us. But I think there's also a a more specific element to this command to listen to what Jesus is saying here. If we look at the the context of the transfiguration, we look at the the mountain um, top experience here, what was it that Jesus was talking about? What was he teaching his disciples kind of at the moment when this command came? Well, if you look immediately before the transfiguration passage up in like uh, verse 23, or 21 actually, Uh, It says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Jesus has been telling his disciples what's coming. And what's coming is his death. Look at at what comes after the transfiguration. Uh, Down in in, in Luke 9, verse uh, 44, he says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Again, he's talking about his death. So so you have this mountaintop experience where, where God says, listen to what Jesus is saying. And what is he saying? He's talking about what he came to do. He's talking about the cross. And, and did you notice what it said? They talked about on the mountain what Jesus and Elijah and Moses spoke about. It says, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. In other words, they spoke about his upcoming death. Of all the things they could have talked about, they talked about his death. So when God speaks to us, when he says, listen to Jesus, in this moment in particular, I think he's saying, pay attention to the cross. This is a big deal. It seems evident to me that in the transfiguration, God is making sure we know that the death of Jesus on the cross is worthy of our attention. God is telling us to do something. He's revealing his will for us through this experience of his presence and what his will for us is to look at the cross, to see the cross. And we, we know, we need to know, there will be those from outside the church, from within inside the church, who are going to seek to minimize the cross. 
They're going to seek to minimize the work that Jesus did. You and I will be at times tempted to minimize what Jesus did on the cross. We'll, we'll be tempted to see the weightiness of our sin. And we'll be tempted to, to look at that and say, this far outweighs the grace of God that I see on the cross. But God's will for us is that we keep it squarely in our sights because that's how we gain access to God's presence. And his will for us is that we would be in his presence. Galatians 1 3 through 5 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. The will of God is to deliver us from our sin. The will of God is that we would, we would embrace that deliverance, that we would receive his forgiveness and we would gain access to his presence through the cross. And once we understand this, I mean, this is foundational, and once we get this, then we're free to continue to pursue the presence of God. And as we do that, we continue to discover more of what his will for us is. And ultimately, what this leads us to is greater holiness, because God's will is always connected to his holiness. His desire for us is that we, you, that we would be holy, that you and I would live in ways that are consistent with God's character. And the more time we spend in his presence, the more we see what this looks like. We see what God is like, which leads us to him revealing his will for us to become like that. I think about my kids, and I think about how as, as I have a will for my kids, right? I have, I have things that I desire for them. I could write it all out on paper. I could, you know, make it some signs and just post it around our house and say, read up, kids, right? Uh, there'll be a test when you're 18, and uh, hopefully you learned what you needed to learn, right? I could, I, I could approach it that way, but that would not be the way of a loving father, the way of a loving father to communicate his will, to communicate his desire for his children is to be with them, to be in their presence. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the second thing was that the presence of God is where we discover his will for our life. Are you hungry for the presence of God? So then the third and final thing. The presence of God is where we find sustaining power. The presence of God in our lives is ultimately where we gain, find the power to sustain us through this journey of life. Uh, all the way back in, in Exodus 33, Moses, uh, you know, we're going back to Moses again here for a second. Um, Moses is talking to God. He's on the mountain. He's, he's having a conversation with God, and he's essentially pleading with God, don't abandon us. And here's what he says. 
verse 15. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is pleading with God here in in a very similar way to the song we sang earlier, right? If you're not here, I don't want to be here. If you don't move, I'm not going to move, right? If, If God doesn't go with us, then we don't want to go there. Moses knew that the only thing that could carry the Israelites through the desert and through the the opposition that they would face was that supernatural presence of God in their midst. He was aware of their need for God to carry them, to sustain them. And you and I need this same supernatural power. As I said earlier, you don't need to look very hard to see the, the world around us is, is increasingly becoming entrenched in this idea of secularism. And, and what, what is secularism? What do I mean when I say that? Secularism is, is any philosophy or system that essentially says we don't have space for God here. We don't have, um, we don't have a category for or we don't have a tolerance for the supernatural. You can believe in God, that's fine, but, but don't let yourself run away with this thought that you actually need him. Don't, don't get carried away in thinking that miracles are a real thing. And, and, and don't even begin to start talking about how morality is divinely inspired. We don't, we don't have space for that here. You can have your belief in God, that's fine. If you, if you need that sort of thing, that's great. But make sure you're investing your energy, your effort, your time into some things that are actually going to make a difference in the world. Have you heard that? feels like you don't have to look very far to see that that type of thinking is becoming the prevailing sentiment. I mean, politically even, like both the right and the left are, are barreling down this path of total self-sufficiency. We know what we need to do in order to create the perfect society. We can exist independent of any divine influence. But this is what makes us distinct. We are people marked by that divine influence. That's what sets us apart. That's what separates us from the secular world. And and here's the thing. As our culture becomes increasingly secular, we, as followers of Jesus, as believers in God, must, our witness must become increasingly supernatural. Let me say that again. As culture becomes increasingly secularized, our Christian witness must become increasingly supernatural. What do I mean by that? There are going to be a lot of people who say, hey, in order to reach the culture for Jesus, in order to see culture changed by Christ, you need to essentially look just like them so you have a connection point, right? So you, um, so you have something to, to relate to them. But, but I'm, I'm going to submit to you that um, the defining characteristic of us as Christians is not how good we are at 
assimilating into our culture, but I think the thing that matters most is this defining characteristic of how well are we reflecting the presence of God? How evident is that supernatural power of God in our lives? We are fundamentally different than the people around us. And, and I'm not saying we need to start like going about looking for like special visions or revelations or these types of appearances that you hear about sometimes. That's not at all what I'm saying we're after here. That devolves real quickly into silliness and, and some dangerous superstition at times. And, you know, if you look at the, the whole of Scripture and say, okay, when God manifests himself, when he, when he uh, reveals his presence, that is usually unprompted by anything that people do. I mean, I, I think it is notable that oftentimes when God's presence appears, it's because someone was praying. I think we should take note of that. But what I'm saying is, when we talk about hungering for the presence of God, do you have a hunger to see the manifest glory of God evident in your home? Are you hungry to see that manifest presence of God, the, the, the supernatural presence of God evident in our worship gatherings? This is the thing that sets us apart. This is what makes us distinct. And ultimately, this is what will sustain us over the course of our lives. Peter was on the mountain with Jesus. And um, toward the end of his life, in the book of 2 Peter, as he writes this book, Peter looks back on the transfiguration here. He looks back on this moment. And you can see that this was a pivotal, sustaining moment for Peter. Uh, he writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What had happened here in the transfiguration had stuck with Peter in a real, powerful, sustaining way. He's, you know, by all accounts, he's near his deathbed as he writes here in 2 Peter. He's, he knows that the end is coming. And so he's, he's kind of contemplating what's the legacy he wants to leave with the church in his writings. And so he's pleading with the followers of Jesus. He says, understand the gospel message I've been preaching to you is not something I cooked up. It didn't come from people. This is not something that originated by any man it had divine authority. I was there, Peter says. I was an eyewitness to when God showed up and gave credibility to what Jesus was saying and doing. I was there. And even beyond that, Peter says, I 
I, we had this prophetic word more fully confirmed, meaning that in addition to witnessing it there on the mountain, witnessing the transfiguration, he was actually with Jesus as he went to the cross, as he died, as he went to the grave, and as he was risen, and then watched him as he ascended to heaven. Peter was there for all of it. So the, the prophetic word that Jesus spoke was fully confirmed in everything that Peter saw. But it was that mountaintop experience that Peter specifically refers to. And, and, and I think about why that could be. And, you know, Peter is writing this letter here in 2 Peter. He's writing this as an encouragement to the church to warn them against false doctrines that were being taught, to inspire them towards courage in, in holding fast the clear message of the gospel. And, and I think it was that glory of God that Peter sensed, that he saw there on the mountain in the presence of God, that, that brief glimpse of God's majestic presence. It was still inspiring and still compelling Peter all the way at the end of his life. When we, when we talk about the presence of God, I, we always, I think it's important for us um, to acknowledge that there is a reality that there are going to be times when we don't sense God's presence. Um, and as I talked about earlier, you know, we, we can have the assurance of knowing that God's spirit dwells with us at all times. So when we don't sense God's presence, um, that can be challenging for us because we're trying to reconcile our experience and what we feel, what we sense and perceive with what we know to be true in scripture. Like we might have faith that he's there, but when, we're when, we're, when it comes to actually feeling it, we're, we're coming up short. These, these seasons can be disorienting, right? This can be incredibly discouraging. They can seem like they come out of nowhere. I mean, in fact, the, the very next passage in Luke 9, we're going to look at next week, the, the, the next day, literally the next day after this experience, they come down off the mountain and, and the disciples encounter a situation where they, they um, are trying to cast a demon out uh, as his father asked them to help them out and they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, it's because of your lack of faith. Literally the next day. And... And so, like, we are going to have these moments of whether it be failure or discouragement or just simply a sense of God not showing up when we want him to show up. We're looking for him, but for whatever reason, he's not responding in, in a way that we're seeing. If you're in that season, I want to I encourage you I want, to, I want to tell you to not give up hope. Keep pursuing more of the presence of God in your life. Ask God to make you hungry for more of his presence. Contend for that. Peter encountered the presence of God on the mountain, and that was crucial to the development of his understanding who God was, and it was foundational to the framework of his faith. And he had moments of failure. He had plenty of them, right? And I know, I'm confident that there were seasons where Peter did not experience or feel the presence of God. But he knew it was there because he had seen it. He had experienced it. 
and getting back to that glory. Getting back to that point where he could say, I'm with God, I'm in his presence. That compelled him to press on to the end. What happened at that transfiguration was, uh, it was such a unique and remarkable experience. And God used it you know, in his sovereign purpose for his glory. He used it to affirm and give credibility to Jesus, his authority and his message. And it's his presence today that continues to draw us into deeper and greater faithfulness. So there are three things. It's his presence that gives us clarity about who he is. It's his presence that teaches us his will for our life. And ultimately, it's God's presence that's going to sustain us. It's going to carry us to the end where ultimately we will see his glory and we will spend eternity with him. Are you hungry for the presence of God?